1: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today, in the first of two interviews, I talk to James Herford about his work on Language in the Light of Evolution. The OUP have recently published the second volume of this book, entitled The Origins of Grammar, but first we revisit his earlier volume, The Origins of Meaning, originally published in 2007. It's a work of enormous scope, both in its ambition to offer an account of the evolutionary development of language in humans, and in the vast range of scholarship that it draws upon, from linguistics, primatology, semiotics, computational modelling, and much else besides. A major achievement of the book is the way in which it brings so much material together and makes so much contemporary research accessible to a wider audience. In this interview, we only touch upon some of the major themes of the work, the ways in which evolutionary considerations influence, or should influence, how we theorise about language, the possible cognitive and neural bases for distinctively human thought, and how animal communication might have been elaborated into the much richer systems at our disposal. I'm talking to Professor James Herford about The
0: Origins of Meaning, the first volume of his magisterial two-volume work on language in the light of evolution. Jim, what first inspired you to undertake this project?
2: Um, Well, I've been doing linguistics, or uh, I started off as a phonetician, which include phonetics, for uh, about 50 years. And um, I've sort of flitted around between various parts of linguistics, touching on most of them. So phonetics, syntax, morphology, semantics, pragmatics. So I've had a rather broad interest. Right rather than depth seems to be my uh, my way. Um and then about twenty, twenty five years ago I got interested in evolution. Um Dawkins' book, Selfish Gene, was very influential for me. At that time I was um working with um computational linguistics and doing computer programming. So I, I it occurred to me to try to write some simple computer simulations of elements of language evolution. So that's what got me started. And then um, I started teaching courses on language evolution um, across the breadth of the parts of language, evolution of sound systems, evolution of syntax, evolution of semantics and pragmatics, and um, thought I ought to write a book about it. So I started off with the semantics and pragmatics part of the book, um, and that turned into a whole book. And then, as you know, the syntax book became a book in itself, and I never got round to the uh, the sound systems, phonetics and phonology. But watch this space. I'm actually writing now um, what OUP call a slim guide to the origins of a language, which will have a bit on phonetics and phonology and will condense down. Uh, a lot of the material from the book we're talking about now and uh, the origins of of grammar and we'll have something on sound systems. Um, So it's been an ongoing project uh, related to teaching um, trying basically to bring all of language and linguistics within the scope of evolution. And uh, there's this saying, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And I think that's true in language too. Um, you can only really understand why things are the way they are if you think of how they got to be that way.
0: Indeed. and um, Although you talk about having a very broad background in uh, linguistics, would it be fair to say that evolutionary uh, approaches to language have been, in the, in the recent past, somewhat uh, discredited or unpopular? And that you, you yourself have played a very substantial role in repopularising these?
2: Um, yes, there have been a minority of people who soldiered on regardless. I mean, there was the, uh, the notorious ban in uh, 1866 on, uh, for from, from the um, Parisian Linguistic Society on papers on language evolution uh, because it was deemed to be too speculative. Um, but that didn't stop people, and there have been people thinking and talking about the evolution of language ever since. Within linguistics, Hockett was one. None of the people in the generative school have devoted any thought to it. They're essentially synchronic linguists. <laughs> Philip Lieberman's another one. Uh, from very early on, he was talking about the evolution of uh of the human vocal apparatus. Uh so there have been people interested. Um one of the big breakthroughs was uh, Stephen Pinker and uh and um, Paul Bloom in nineteen ninety, uh who wrote this book called Natural Language and sorry, this article, Natural Language and Natural Selection where they argued that uh, such a complex thing as language, um, just like such a complex thing as the eye, could only have come about through natural selection. And that was a, a bit of a breakthrough. For odd reasons, uh, people in the generative school, especially Chomsky, have always resisted the idea that uh, the language capacity could have come about by natural selection. And here's someone closely associated with the uh, generative school, Pinker and Bloom, uh, arguing to the country very forcefully, and that was a bit of a, a watershed. Uh, there had been a conference before that in seventy-six, I believe, uh, organised by Stephen Hanad on evolution of language. Uh, nothing there was not much follow-through from that. And then um, Chris Knight and I started a series of conferences, which have been uh, quite well attended and quite fun, and I guess quite in- influential. That started in nineteen ninety-six. They've been going on every two years since. Um there's definitely been a big um, upsurge in it. Not not much in linguistics. I mean I could count probably on the fingers of two hands the, the linguists who are actively interested in language evolution. And that's a pity. There are quite a few people outside and I think that you know anthropologists and psychologists, um, computer scientists even I think we need input from linguists who, who know much more about what language is like. But it's, it's growing. This EvoLang conference every two years is very interdisciplinary and getting somewhat more technical with each uh, each successive conference. So it's beginning to be a bit of a subject.
0: Going back to the linguists, um, presumably it's an issue that people and otherwise, if they don't consider evolution, can produce theories that are intrinsically very difficult to reconcile with an evolutionary approach.
2: Yes, that's certainly true. Um, that Maybe a bit of a caricature example is the idea from way back that our language is a set of sentences. I guess nobody really took out all that... St- well, they, it was a kind of double thing. Uh, for the purpose of writing academic articles, it was taken quite seriously that our language is nothing more than a set of sentences. So really a mathematical object, um, you know, like a, like a natural number. And there's no way you can think of uh, of a mathematical object being subject to the forces of um, of evolution, natural selection. Uh, so that that's a stark caricature example. more recently, Chomsky's been saying that um, or he said for a long time that uh, that it's not obvious that the the primary purpose of language is communication. so you ask him what it is, and he said, oh it's it's an internal computation mechanism well. It's possible that that could have arisen by natural selection, so people completely privately being able to solve problems, practical problems, by thinking about them in more complex ways would have had a, a selective advantage. But it also seems um, unlikely that communication didn't play a part. People solve problems collectively, not just on their own, and uh, solving problems collectively would involve communication. And the system for communication would have uh, been adapted for solving problems collectively and would have helped the whole group. Um, so there's an element of group selection, which is a kind of natural selection involved there. More more generally, though, I think linguists are just stuck in a kind of synchronic rut. I remember being taught that um, that the first thing to do is to describe the language the way it is and never mind about the history. Then, a bit later in my career, I was actually made to teach a course on the history of the English language, and it uh, opened the door for me. I realized that English was the way it was because it had a history. But historical linguistics is, uh, is a sub-discipline that a lot of linguists don't get into. And likewise, evolutionary considerations do- don't play a large part in most people's thinking.
0: Do you find historical linguists are receptive to evolutionary approaches, or do they, in some sense, think uh, they don't want to go back that far?
2: Definitely. O- on the whole, they're very sceptical about um, going back any further than about 5,000 years. And it's quite right that the, uh, the evidence gets very thin. Uh, if you're comparing languages, then the, uh, the similarities between them on which you can build reconstructions run out once you've uh, uh, once you've got built back maybe about 5,000 years. On the other hand, there are some contributions that historical linguists make, which can lead us to make inferences about much deeper processes. So they talk, for instance, about grammaticalization. So grammaticalization is a largely one-way process by which uh, functional words, little words like to and and, and the, and um, inflections on verbs and nouns and so on are produced in the history of a language by being converted from uh, um, content words, n- nouns and verbs. Now, that's a one-way process. And if it's a one-way process, then uh, you're forced into uh, the belief that languages have got uh, more complex in those ways over the course of the time. So they've developed more uh, function words develop more inflections, um, so there is this one-way process, and you can use that one-way process to project back to what were um, simpler stages of language. There's always been a political objection within linguistics to talking about simple languages, um, and that was um, well motivated because if you you know go to places with uh, simple material cultures, so, you know you go to the uh, the outback in Australia, where people live very materially simple lives, Um, it's wrong to think that the languages are simple. Far from it. The languages are very complex. So linguists had to fight the battle that people with materially simple lives had complex languages. And so they tended to emphasize that every language is equally complex. Now, that's actually not true. Uh, You can find parts of languages which are more complex than other parts of other languages. Um, and you can overall you can find languages which in some sense, are simpler. the whole language is simpler and we can find in unusual circumstances, we can find cases where <coughs> uh, what you may or may not want to call languages are really simple so pigeons, uh, if you put two communities together which don't share a language, then they'll develop one uh, or at least they'll develop a simple means of communication um, which is has no no grammatical inflections, no functional words, but is uh, is largely nouns and verbs thrown together. Uh, and that is a simple form of language. You see it in uh, the language of two-year-olds um, just beginning to learn uh, um, the language of their community. You see it in the um, the performance of trained apes as well. Um, they string words together in a very simple way with, with little or no grammar. And um, th- those have been called fossils. Of language fossils, not a very good term actually. but uh, it shows that uh, that people uh, and incidentally apes can uh, can manage simpler systems, and uh, in the case of people, these lead to more complicated systems. So it's reasonable to think that uh, in the prehistory of humans that uh, there was a similar process, that the um, that language started off uh, simply and uh, got more complex. This is actually verging on the, um, the content of the second book now, the, um, the origins of grammar rather than the origins of meaning.
0: Sure. Um, but would it be fair to say that the, your general programme in in the two books is is along the lines of attempting to formalise language or to make statements about language uh, which are applicable now but in some sense are gradable and, go, and enable us to uh, look back to simpler languages or proto-languages as uh, a process of relatively uh, gradual change.
2: Um, yes, I would say that, but I think that's, that's more true in the central parts of uh, the structure of language, like in grammar and in phonology. In the case of semantics and pragmatics, I would say that the, the basic elements, or at least um, very simple examples of them, uh, can be found all in animal behavior. They're all there. So, uh, I argue, as you know, that you can find, um, predication, you can find reference, uh, you can find dixis, what else is there, uh, propositional structure in, in the, um, the thought of animals, of non-human animals. Uh, so those are all present. Uh, illocution, um, so people doing to e- things to each other with language. Uh, animals do things to each other through their uh, their uh, communicative gestures and and displays so the ty- the way i put it is that the tiny seeds of what's essential to language can all be found in um, in animal behavior another one that i haven't mentioned is uh is episodic memory i mean it used to be said that uh only humans have a memory for things that have happened to them uh, in person so remembering uh, where you got out of bed this morning, remembering uh, where you were last night. Uh, it's been said that uh, animals don't have that kind of memory. They can remember. They can know their environment. They, that is, they can know where to find food and so on. But they can't remember specific things that have happened to them. So that, that's a claim about uh, humans being unique. But uh, as you know, in the book, I've argued that uh, that there's evidence that uh, that non-human animals can. Remember things that have happened to them and things that they've done. So a classic example of uh, the scrub jays, remembering where they've put food and remembering what kind of food it was that they put there and remembering how long ago they put it there. Um, So these are all tiny beginnings. And on uh, on the whole, animals, non-human animals, are basically only concerned with food and sex. And humans are motivated by much more than that. Um, so uh, the examples that that show up in the animal literature are almost all even the experimental literature are all, almost all connected with uh, food rewards um, and humans have uh, have progressed beyond that but nevertheless those uh, those elements reference predication propositional structure, doing things to each other as we do with language um, episodic memory uh, I claim those are all to be found, in a very simple form, in manable behaviour.
0: I'd like, if I may, to, to sort of take a tour through some of these in, in slightly more detail. Um, in, the, well, in the first part of the Origins of Meaning, you give a, a characterisation of semantics that's in some sense workable from an evolutionary standpoint, and at the beginning of the second part, in fact, you do the same for the locutionary acts. Would it be fair to describe this as a, as a very broad construal of semantics from a, from a linguist's point of view?
2: Uh, yes, it is. There's an essential um, difference. So, uh, <coughs> what um, many semanticists, wrongly I believe, uh, the, the way they treat semantics, is as a relation, a direct relation between language and the world. Uh, so, you know, the word tree uh, relates to this, a set of things out there in the world which happen to be trees. Um, a proper name like Chris uh, relates to you, the individual you. And uh, these treatments of semantics bypass uh, the human mind. They bypass concepts. So um, it, going way back, Ogden and Richards set out what they called a triangle of signification, I think they called it. So basically um, an indirect relationship between language and the world, where the world is outside us, is conceived inside us in terms of um, mental constructs, concepts. And then the words we have are words for those concepts. They're not words for things. They're not directly words for things in the world, but words for um, things in the head. So my take on on semantics is that it's uh, it's a before linguistics before language. Sorry, is that it's a relationship between concepts in the world, and then in the evolution of language, what happened is that uh, public symbols got associated with the private concepts, which animals had, of elements of their world. I start with a view of semantics, which is, maybe paradoxically, um, nothing to do with language, but on which the semantics of language can be built. So semantics, for me, is um, the relationship between the world and hum- or, um, organisms' thoughts and ideas and concepts of what the world is like, which may be quite uh, quite complex, these thoughts. Uh, quite well structured. And then um, along comes public language where individuals start communicating to each other about the, their their thoughts and having uh, you know, uh, lived in the same environment and having had similar experiences, uh, the thoughts they have in their heads are pretty similar to each other, so communication about the things out there in the world is possible. So um, the take on semantics is, is consistent with ideas in linguistics about semantics. So you can accommodate ideas like reference um, and truth. Uh, so rather than saying that a word refers, I would say that a concept refers. And a word only indirectly refers to things because the concept corresponding to the word refers to things. Um, so reference is a relationship between what's in our heads and what's out there in the world, and we have words for what's in our heads, and so reference becomes a relationship between the words and the world. It's may an unorthodox take on semantics, but I think it's, it's completely compatible with, with the orthodox view if you take a conceptualist position.
0: Towards the end of the uh, first part of the book, you explore some of the um, possible underpinnings of this, this sort of proto, proto-propositional system. You explored this rather fascinating idea that there's uh, something in the neurological distinction between the dorsal and the ventral pathways, the, the where and what streams, that equips humans and certain other animals uh, to entertain these, these proto-propositions. I wonder, could you expand on that a little?
2: Yes. If you read any logic book, the structure of a proposition, which is the basic um, element in in any logical system, uh, has two elements in it. It's got the predicates and arguments and the way logic textbooks introduce this is typically by saying, um, for example, a, a proposition might be that John sleeps. And so the uh, the predicate part is what's asserted of John that he sleeps and the the argument part of the proposition is the term referring to John Logicians also uh, allow a different kind of argument to a a predicate, which is uh, something which doesn't refer at all. It's just, it's empty. It stands in for anything to which the predicate uh, can apply. So it's a way of saying, for example, something is sleeping, or something is is noisy around here, or something is smelly around here, for example. You're, You're not sure what it is, but you know of whatever it is, that it's smelly or noisy or whatever, um, and so I take that form of proposition with the with an em- so-called empty argument as being the basic kind, and uh, it turns out that in um, in neuroscience you can find uh, different brain mechanisms which basically correspond to uh, locating an empty object, locating an object um, that you don't know anything about apart from the fact that you know it's there. Uh, that's one brain mechanism. That's the dorsal mechanism. And another mechanism, which, once you've uh, paid attention to it, will tell you what kind of thing it is. So these, these mechanisms are called the, the what-stream and the where-stream. The where-stream kicks in first, so something catches your attention. At that point, it all happens extremely fast, of course. At that point, um, you're simply aware that there's something there. And that would be the, uh, the empty argument. Uh, that that one is aware of, and then immediately, having paid attention to it, you start making judgments about it. You decide what color it is, um, how big it is, and then eventually you might decide, "Aha, it's a face." You might even further on decide wh- whose face it is. These are all sequential processes in the brain. Um, but it, it's well known that these uh, these two pathways, the aware pathway, which simply becomes aware of, a, of a, an entity in the environment, and the what pathway, which then delivers judgments about what it is. These exist in non-human animals. So um, the, the first discovery of these was in macaques, monkeys, which are primates, but they're not the most closely related animals to uh, to humans. When you think about it, it's not at all surprising that uh, that there, there should be these mechanisms. So we, we know that uh, attending to something is crucial for you to be able to make any judgment about it and decide how to deal with it so um having a an attention delivering uh, mechanism is, is plausible uh, and then having a, a judgment forming decision uh, mechanism that tells you you know what what kind of thing this is that you're looking at uh, is also plausible uh, animals negotiating the world need to have their attention drawn to things and then need to be able to to decide what they are and how to deal with them. So it's not very surprising, actually. And um, what I claim is that uh, basically logicians have had it right all along, that the basic structure of thought has these two components, the uh, the bare thing, and then whatever judgments, I've called them, or predicates, uh, like what color it is, what size it is, that, that apply to the bare thing. So the logicians have had it right all along, basically, that there is this distinction between uh, predicate and argument. The important step was taken by Frege, who who, um, identified these uh, elements of the proposition, and this replaced the thought which had been going for 2,000 years, Aristotelian thought, um, which was much more closely based on language. So the idea that there's a subject and a predicate in any thought is now... Um, more complicated. Well, in one way more complicated, in one way more simple. But ba- basically, the claim is we don't think, think so much in words, but we think in these uh, propositional structures, and animals do too.
0: Is the, uh, is the usefulness or the power of propositional thinking part of the evolutionary story about why these two brain mechanisms formed up separately, or, or is it some kind of acceptation?
2: Well, as I say, non-human animals have these two brain mechanisms, and, uh, I, I don't know about fish, but I, I would suspect that, uh, that all mammals and probably all birds uh, have these two brain mechanisms as well. So any, uh, any organism that, uh, that picks out individual objects in the world and then, then has to decide what to do with them, you know, whether to eat them or whether to run away from them or, or swim away from them, I would imagine that, uh, that that there will be similar mechanisms in any organism like this. So they're extremely ancient, I would guess, these mechanisms. So uh, they're adaptive from that point of view. Um, it's po- you mentioned exaptation. It's possible that uh, that the two-part structure of human sentences is somehow just built on top of that. If you think of our well, our thought is has got these two elements to it, and so. The sentences that we use in communication should have these two elements to it. An interesting case, I think, here is the case of um, weather terms. Thoughts about the weather are actually rather exceptional. There's no object which is doing anything. It's not like something grabbing your attention and you deciding that it's red. So basically you're just aware that rain is happening, or that snow is happening, or that it's hot. But it's interesting that that in languages we have to um, express that with a two part bit we have to say it is hot just saying hot is uh, is not good english and languages do it in different ways so in uh, in arabic they say the world is hot and in um, in russian uh they do it the other way around so the uh, the meaningful bit goes in the uh, in the noun not in the verb so they say rain goes or snow goes but it's interesting that they have to to say it in two parts and maybe that's um that's built on on the habit of thinking in two parts about objects, um, so weather is exceptional, and somehow you make your thought about weather conform to your thought about objects. Uh, you you um, you imagine an it which is doing the raining, or a, a world which is doing the raining.
0: I think it's a, it's a very interesting observation. Um, what I had in mind was maybe even a more speculative question about whether uh, whether there was something intrinsic to the nature of the system of thinking that happens because we have these two pathways uh, there was, that was so useful as to justify the maintenance of, of, of a twin system of this kind, or whether you felt the two pathways uh, arise simply for, for purely practical reasons of the way it, the way it suits the brain to uh, treat the recognition of objects or the property description of objects.
2: Um yes, I think that is what you say is right, that it, it it's any any creature which negotiates the world and deals selectively with different objects, so picks them out and then decides what to do with them and how to react to them, uh I think we'll we'll have these two different mechanisms. Um uh, there have been philosophers who have speculated about possibly more simple ways of thinking um, they're called uh, feature systems I think, um, which are basically much more like the way we think about well, the way weather seems to work that is basically that the, the structure of thought is not built around um, identification of an object and then saying something or thinking something about it uh, but just uh, treating the world as a, as a set of one place judgments like rain, smelly uh, hot, uh, and I think Strawson's point is that uh, that it's hard to imagine uh, doing the complicated things we do uh, in the world with, with only a simple way of thinking like that. Um, so this propositional thought is uh, is highly adaptive, I would say. That's not actually something that I argue in the book. I just argue that, uh, that that it's the basis of uh, of language. We express propositions in language, and you can find proposition like structure in, uh, in animal thought as well.
0: And you go on to conclude the first section of the book by um, articulating a, a semantics based on one place predicates, in which the complex predicates are in some sense unpacked into, into simpler forms. Yeah. Obviously, this isn't quite, this isn't quite as simple as the uh, Weber simplicity. Um, is there a limitation to one place predicate thinking if you were to implement that in a system? Or do you think that could actually be a psychologically plausible way of articulating uh, human semantics as it currently is?
2: Well, that part of the book is uh, is more of an experiment than, uh, and I'm not I'm not entirely happy with it. Um, but I pushed the line that we can analyze uh, complex propositions in terms of one-place predicates only. Um, so this uh, dorsal-ventral separation. Uh, can only be made to apply to uh, one-place predicates. And obviously, uh, when we talk, we um, we talk about uh, relations between objects. So, you know, John gave Mary a book, for example, um, has got three arguments to the predicate give. Uh, so I, I have a problem there. How can you reduce everything to to one-place predicates? I grasp at an idea which comes out of psychology, which is a, a distinction between global attention and local attention. So one can attend to a whole scene and decide what kind of a scene it is. Um, So in the example of John giving Mary a book, I would claim that one can take in the whole scene and decide that what characterizes that scene is giving. So it's a giving scene. And then within global attention, one can attend to the individual objects. So one can attend to John and decide that, that that thing is John. One can attend to the book and decide that that thing is in the book, and to Mary, decide that that thing is Mary. Um, so, again, there's something complicated going on in the brain, like the, 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 the dorsal and ventral mechanisms, only in this case it's a distinction between, um, or an in, inter-acting of two different kinds of attention. Attention to a whole scene, um, of which you make a judgement, and attention to the parts of that scene, uh, again, of which you make one-place judgments. So, um, I think to some extent that will hold up. In the psychological literature there are cases where, um, there are um, pa- pathological cases, where uh, people with, with particular disabilities can only do one or the other. So there's this um, condition called simultanagnosia. And uh, that's sometimes loosely described as being only able to see one thing at a time. So a classic case is if someone is shown um, <clears throat> a rectangle made up of dots, they can either only see the rectangle or they can only see the dots. And, for example, they couldn't count the dots because counting dots means that you're able to see more than one. So they can only attend to one object at a time in, in this um, pathological case. I'm helped out a bit also by theoretical uh, semanticists, by logicians who... who in, in the case of event semantics, I've taken a similar line. So, uh, in the case of John giving Mary a book, they would describe that as being um, an event of giving, and there's a one-place predicate applying to the whole event, and then within that there are there are participants. So I've got um, respectable counterparts both in the uh, psychological literature and the pathology, and and in the uh, the semantic uh, very armchair-bound theoretical literature as well. I'm not completely comfortable with that whole account because of um two place predicates like um you know, position predicates like on you no know, the book is on the table, and somehow it just seems a bit artificial to say that one perceives that as an onness situation with two participants um i'm a bit uneasy about that um uh, but in the case of actions, it doesn't seem too bad to me um Let me just mention one more thing which. I think I didn't mention in this book, but it's mentioned in the other. In Nicaraguan sign language, when the uh, in the very first stages of the, uh, the development of sign language, the, um, the first signers would use very simple um, expressions to, uh, to describe rather complicated events. So uh, one of these Nicaraguan kids was shown a, a video of a man pushing a woman and a woman falling over. So we would describe that in, in English, saying as the, the man pushed the woman over. So a two-place predicate, man pushed the woman. So push the two arguments, woman and man. Um, but what the kid did was basically break it up into uh, two elements. He said, or he signed, man push, pause, woman fall. So, so the, the very basic form of the, the growing language there was, again, um, one-place predicates, man push, there's, there's some pushing going on by a man, and there's some falling going on by a woman. Uh, and then what happened later on in the development of Nicaraguan Sign Language is that the, the push and the fall got squished together. So you get man, push-fall, woman. Or man, woman, push-fall. So there's some interesting developments there, and one could perhaps mount an argument, I don't mount it in detail, but the early stages of language did involve all one-place predicates. Uh, There's also some arguments in the next book about how this relates to serial verbs that you find in some languages, too.
0: In the previous chapter, you also raised the idea that there might be a um, connection between the limits we have in the number of things we can simultaneously attend to and the number of arguments that we're allowed to have in our predicates. Yes. I wonder, did you see those attentional limits as something that's potentially changed evolutionarily, Uh, humans maybe moving up from... uh, Simple one place predicates for something more complicated, or, or uh, have we just become maybe better at switching attention or some similar?
2: Well, the, the number of, of objects that we can keep track of in a, in a moving scene uh, is limited to about four. So um, re- remember, um, I say, even though I, I push the line of, of everything being reducible to one place predicates, remember that there are predicates of events which have participants. And, um, and the number of participants in, in an event that we conceive of or, or um, understand is limited to about four. Now, uh, work on, on uh, primates seems to show a similar limit. That is, the number of, uh, of objects that, uh, that a chimpanzee can keep track of at once is limited to about four. The, the judgments that a chimpanzee can make about how many objects there are in a collection at a glance is limited to about four, and that, that's the, the same as humans. The distinction between local and global attention is also found in uh, non-human animals too, so they found it in pigeons even. So I, I don't think that you can say that if we're comparing birds, mammals and, and humans, um, that there's any uh, development there. Um, we're all stuck in the same uh, the same or very, very similar limitations. We can attend to about the same number of objects in the scene. We can make a, a one place uh, judgment about each object and about the scene as a whole. And that, that's common to human thought and quite a bit of non-human thought as well. So I, I wouldn't say that there's any progression. Obviously, with language, we're now able to um, express quite complex thoughts with subordinate clauses. And remember the sentences themselves. And that may give us a way, in fact, I'm sure it does, give us a way of thinking more complex thoughts than we could without language. Um, but uh, without the involvement of language, I think there's there's very little difference between uh, what we can think and what, uh, what some of our close relatives can think.
0: Turning then, if I may to the second part of the book, uh, you, as you put it, go public and talk about communication. Yep. Uh, definitions here can sometimes be rather elusive, again, as you discuss. What's your view on what constitutes communication?
2: <laughs> well, um, I just had a look at those, uh, that chapter again, and I, and I realised that I, I basically ducked it. And uh, I turned the fact that it's difficult to define communication to advantage by saying, well, communication evolves out of non-communication. In fact, if you're thinking evolutionarily, um, everything of a certain type evolves out of something that previously wasn't of that type. So language evolves out of non-language. Humans evolve out of non-humans. So there are things that we might not want to call communication now, uh, but which nevertheless were the evolutionary precursors of communication. So uh, it's not easy to, uh, or it's rather arbitrary to, to put a... Um, Uh, a line around exactly what is communication, but I'll be a bit more helpful on that. For practical purposes, communication is intentional behaviour, which is made to influence the behaviour of another person, in such a way that the person affected understands that that's what's intended.
0: I think I know people here who will be very pleased to hear that. (laughs)
2: You
0: you go on a couple of chapters later to address the question of, of why it should be adaptive to communicate. This is this is something that's sort of intuitively very obvious because it's so useful, but it's, it's quite difficult to articulate an explanation at, a, at an individual level, isn't it?
2: It is, yes. Um, so, communication seems altruistic. That is, uh, giving information away, which might be useful to us, and uh, making it available to other people would seem to be against our interests. Um, so there is, a, at first sight, there's a kind of a paradox there. Why should we uh, <clears throat> give informa- valuable information away to other people? Um, but I think it's very easily resolved that it, w- once you accept that we live in uh, a cooperative society, so we live in groups which cooperate cooperate with each other, and each individual benefits from living in a cooperative group. So um, to be a member of a cooperative group, you, you sometimes give information to uh, other people in the expectation that other people will... Reciprocally, give you information later on. Um, it's tip for tat strategy, and that works to the benefit of the group and it works to the benefit of individuals. So we end up with uh, with no great puzzle there, um, unless you say that the puzzle is pushed back. That is, how do we get to be so cooperative in the first place? And it's clear that uh, that human groups, social groups, are much more cooperative uh, internally than uh, than other animal groups. Uh nevertheless, you know, on some kind of a um scale through monkeys and uh, apes, uh it's it's evident that um chimpanzees, for example, are are more cooperative within their groups than groups of monkeys, for example. Um there's some cooperation among groups of chimpanzees who who hunt monkeys. Not more cooperation than there is among wolves and lions, for example. So again there's some kind of uh a gradual progression, a degree of cooperativeness um, in, in chimpanzees, uh, but a far, far greater degree of cooperativeness in, in humans. And um, quite how we got to be so cooperative is, is still um, not completely understood. Uh, but I think it's accepted that we are.
0: You also present and discuss some very interesting work on the uh, possible emergence of referring expressions, these, these triadic relations. In um, particular, you mentioned a study by Zuberbühler and colleagues that sets out to distinguish between an animal just reacting to an alarm call and it showing signs of awareness that the call refers to a particular predator. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us about the, the implications of that, in your view?
2: Well, it's, um, the, the, uh, the classic example of vervet monkeys has them giving three kinds of alarm call. One for pythons, one for eagles, and one for leopards. Um, and uh, when they hear a when they see a leopard, they give a so-called bark. And when they hear a bark, they run up a tree, uh, which is a smart thing to do if there's a leopard around. Um, now, uh, some people have seen in this the the origins of reference. That is, they they say that what the vervet monkey is doing is actually um, holding the concept of a leopard in its head and communicating the concept of a leopard to the other vervets. People who who don't like that way of thinking, who think it's um, attributing too much to the monkeys, say no. What What's happening is really that uh, separately, but in parallel, they've they've developed a disposition to give the bark call when they see a leopard, and then, complementarily, um, when they hear a bark call, climb up a tree. But without the concept of a leopard entering their heads when they hear the bark call. Now, what Klaus Tübinger has done. As very cleverly, he's gone out into the uh, the forest in uh, I think is in Cote d'Ivoire in, in Africa, and where there are monkeys who make similar alarm calls. Not vervets, actually; these are Diana monkeys. The Diana monkeys, like the vervets, they have one alarm call for leopards and another alarm call for predatory birds like eagles. Um, and the animals themselves, the leopards and the eagles, make characteristic noises. So the leopard gives a growl. And the, uh, the eagle gives a screech. And these noises made by the predators are obviously quite different from the alarm calls. What Superbuller has done is he tape recorded, for example, the alarm call, uh, meaning, if you allow the term, meaning leopard, uh, and tape recorded the growl of a leopard. And also tape recorded the, uh, the screech of an eagle. So, he, he'll play the alarm call for the leopard to the monkeys. And they, uh, they look suitably worried and, and, um, begin to, uh, to climb the trees. And then he'll play five minutes later. He'll play the screech of an eagle. And they, uh, they react as if, um, to, uh, the presence of an eagle. Um, but if five minutes later he had played the growl of a leopard, uh, they're, they're not so perturbed. Um, that is, they, they've already, the interpretation is, they've already become aware through the alarm call. Of the presence of a leopard nearby. So when they hear the leopard growl, they're not particularly bothered. And he's done it the other way around, of course. He's played the eagle alarm call, followed by either the eagle screech or the leopard growl. In the case where he plays the eagle alarm call, followed by leopard growl, then there's more panic, a new predator around. In the case where he plays the eagle alarm call, followed by eagle screech, less panic, because the interpretation is they knew about the eagle already so the, the concept of an eagle was present in their mind at least for that five minutes he uh, doesn't make any stronger claims than that and this this actually goes back to an earlier discussion of, um, of episodic memory and, and uh, uh, object permanence so animals can, can keep in mind an object they've been aware of even when they're not experiencing it anymore for short periods of time uh, as you know i use that as, a, as the basis for human talk about things which are not present.
0: To, uh, to conclude our discussion of this volume, um, I have to ask, there are, there are so many theories on the table as to why language evolved, or out of, out of precisely what uh, immediate sort of precursor or what, what function. Do you have a preference, personally, or do you try to be agnostic between these, these various ideas?
2: I think there's a growing consensus that, that um, de- despite uh, some linguists' claim, that, that there, there has to have been some continuity between uh, human language and animal behavior. The biggest gap, and you find this uh, quite a bit, uh, even in people discussing the evolution of language, is between animal calls and, um, and human words. And um, the gap there is because animal calls are largely, although not entirely, involuntary, whereas the words we use are, are almost entirely voluntary. That is, we, we think about them and we choose to we choose the words we use. Uh, so I think the um, the 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 big movement has been a transition from involuntary signals uh, to voluntary control of signals. Um, you can begin to see this a bit in animal behavior in that, even in the case of the verbits, they don't always give the bark when they see a leopard. Um, if there are no other vervets around, they don't bother. And so that's just, that can be interpreted as them um, choosing not to give it because there's no point. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, there's, um, there's quite a bit of compulsion over which the verbits have, have no control. So in the neuroscience, for example, the, there's no, in monkeys, there's no direct connection from the, uh, motor cortex, from the, the neocortex to the, uh, the, the larynx, the, the vocal vo- vo- mechanism. So they're, they're not able to, to control their vocalizations to anything like the same extent as humans. And I think what must have happened in the case of humans, um, is that, uh, we gradually made a transition from, uh, innate involuntary, um, vocal behavior to learned voluntary vocal behavior. Um, that, that's my preference um, the gradualness I think most people are beginning to come around to, the uh, aspect that you mentioned about restriction to one place predicates um, there's certainly a puzzle there how we, we came to be able to express complex sentences involving what we now take to be two and three place predicates um, I, I'm still uh, open to uh, to persuasion about what may have happened there
0: well, I look forward to having the opportunity to talk to you again about the second volume and uh, possibly to ask all the questions that haven't yet occurred to me
1: about what you've said today. For now, Jim Herford, let me say thank you very much for your time.
2: OK, you're welcome. Bye-bye.
1: I've been talking to James Herford about the origins of meaning. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.